Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Austin. Hey, Paul. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? Been driving the last two days. I'm in Kearney, Nebraska right now. Oh. So the family's on vacation. My plan is to use my vacation time to prep for my presentation for next week. That's what I plan on doing on this thing. Oh, I'm sure your family will appreciate your... (laughs) You're studying. Sarah's in a wedding, and so is my daughter. So they got to stand up, and so Sarah's the bridesmaid, and then Lydia's the flower girl. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. So we're we're trying to do a two-for-one deal, be, be president of the wedding and also make a trip of this. Good deal. Yeah, there's a lot to see up in Idaho. I've I never been there, so we're going to find out. I never have either, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Was there a lot of people who have ICOM then? Yeah, yeah, it was a big crowd. Uh, and in fact, we stopped at David Rawls Church on our way home. I, I saw the picture. <laughs> yeah, I had to. Uh, I had to be on my guard of what I said. <laughs> I bet that was scary, David. You didn't want to say anything that was too terrible. No, I said uh, violence was okay in some situations. <laughs> that was point number one. Just when you get mad. Point number point number two is Luther has some great doctrine. I forget. There were some other points in there. Yeah. Uh, he had a wonderful <laughs> sermon. He sure did. I was quite impressed with the church. Yeah, they're a pretty good group. Absolutely. Although, I think in the future, Dave, we need to do something about our uh, photography because uh, I came out looking like a little elf. <laughs> It made me look really tall. <laughs> I looked like something you might have caught in the woods and, and gotten three wishes from. Or <laughs> you you look like my um, Lord of the Rings uh, pictures that I posted. Do Are I look you? like any? Do I look any like anybody for Lord of the Rings? Well, I was just saying I I went <laughs> to visit David's church and. Oh. They took picture David. They took some pictures of me standing next to David, and you can't really tell it on Zoom. How tall? How tall are you, Dave? About twelve feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a wizard. I uh, I'm a wizard. I tell people I'm five nineteen and a half. <laughs> uh, wow. So, what you visiting David's church? Was that was that for him to graduate? Actually, that would have been ideal, wouldn't it? If we could have gone there and given him the oral exam. Yeah. Oh, my. That would, oh, yeah. very, that would have gone well. <laughs> I feel like I'm just holding on in these classes. Is everybody uh, real happy with Martin Luther? Sure, I'll have questions. I mean, we just did the Westerholm reading. And so I'm trying to fill in the blanks here because uh, I think they gave us the idea of the biblical interpretation. So I, I'll, I'll watch you, and if you guys start nodding off, I'll, I'll realize I've, I've overdone it. Uh, should I say something that just sounds uh, that, that you don't know what I'm talking about? Stop me. But I'm going to do the history of Western thought <laughs> as connected to Martin Luther. It's a semi-joke to say Western thought, There's very little in Western philosophy and Western theology that has not been impacted by what Luther did. 
And in fact, it may be easier to say, oh, here are some effects of Martin Luther than to trace this and say that it's definitively identified with him. And this is point one. You know, for example, when we think of Luther, we usually think in terms of his theology as being tied up with forensics or law, that is, the satisfaction of the law. I don't think that's unfair to him, and I'm going to build upon that. But there are those who would say that, in fact, is not. And to say that defines him, maybe that's too much, you know, to say that law versus grace is definitive of his theology. That's usually what we say in introducing Luther. And with that, there goes the idea that there is no ontological access to the divine essence. I'm going to talk about this a little bit, but even this is disputed. There's a group of Finnish theologians who actually working with the Orthodox Church, they're Lutherans, but they're trying, they're arguing that Luther has his own doctrine of apocatastasis. I think it's it's interesting. It's not, I don't think they can make the case all the way, but I think even in making their case, they're showing us that there's Luther certainly is more complicated than we might tend to make him. And that is that we might just reduce him down to imputed righteousness, that that in some way characterizes his theology. In a sense, I think we've got to say that. Does everybody understand what we mean by imputed righteousness? David can run that down in about two sentences. Isn't it just simply a declared righteousness? Yeah, that uh, people are declared not guilty. Right. Is that unfair? The idea that it may not result in an actually lived righteousous or ethic, but legal, declared legally righteous. When On the day of judgment, God doesn't actually see who you are. He just sees Christ in your, in your place. That's what, yeah. And, Whether Luther is defined by forensics, certainly John Calvin comes in the wake of Luther, I don't think we're in any danger of of saying that about John Calvin, that his doctrine of penal substitution takes Lutheranism and makes it, you know, if Luther is not that, or if Luther is more complicated than that, Calvin takes it a step further. By the same token, we can also say that the history of Western philosophy, this sounds too big to say it this way, but I just thought, you know, immediately you think of Kant's phenomena and noumena. That is that we only have access to the phenomena, we don't have access to the noumena. I think even Descartes, you know, Descartes Catholic, but he's working in a context of the scientific revolution, and there's faith over and against reason, that's a very Lutheran, or that at least Luther marks that discussion. And so faith alone, you know, it, to me it sounds very similar to a lot of what's happening in German idealism. There is the focus on the ideas, on language, that that's a, a kind of reality unto itself. And so the focus on the word as opposed to being focused on metaphysics. That's what's going to happen in modern philosophy with phenomenology and the turn to linguistics. So should we chalk all that up to Luther? Well, probably not, but could it have happened apart from the Reformation instigated by Luther? 
In other words, you, you look up, you know, you'll see it again. It may sound like we're talking about very different people. Kant, Kierkegaard, Hegel, they're, they're working in a Lutheran context. Let me explain that in saying this, the, my understanding of history is not like the great man theory of history that we say, oh, this, this guy did it all. But I think the more correct thing to say is that he is a marker of this shift. So that he himself, you know, clearly he's an important person and he brought this about. But of course, there is the shift is sociological and a lot of other things are happening. So I think we can locate Luther within the context that is uh, called nominalism. And it's both what he is against and what he is for. There's two sides to nominalism. And so it's the context of his argument. So the father of what is called Via Moderna, or a modern understanding, William of Ockham, who is actually 1287, denied the existence of universals in the world. This would have been the underlying foundation of what is called scholasticism. So Thomas Aquinas, Dunn, Scotus are working in the scholastic understanding. Uh, scholasticism is just the fusion, you know, what, what is the word scholastic mean? If I had to trace it, I'd go back to Anselm of Canterbury. Obviously, again, it's not starting with Anselm, but Anselm is taking up and purposely fusing Platonic philosophical thought with theology, and that's why you get the distinctive understanding. We usually think of Aquinas as fusing Aristotelian thought with theological understanding. And even that may be a bit of an exaggeration that if we make a complete differentiation between Plato and Aristotle. But at any rate, what Luther is going to be against is the scholastic fusion with philosophy. William of Ockham, along with many medieval theologians, He's going to make the distinction between God's potentia, or the potential, and God's absoluteness. Uh, and the idea is that what God can potentially do is separate. That is, that God has the absolute power to do in his ominence. Uh, you know, we don't know what that is, and that's different from his ordered power, the whole discussion is focused on, you know, again, there's a shift in Western theology. It goes back to Augustine. There is a shift to focusing on God's sovereignty. But the idea in is that he exercises self-limitation to the order of the universe through acts of uh, creation and redemption. And so they're going to view these two things, the potential and the absolute, as two different things. And e even as if they were two independent successive moments in God's power, rather than two aspects of one divine sovereignty. So the power of God that we come into contact with is not God in his essence. That's the, the point here. Louis Dupre uh, underscores, he says that God at a first time possesses absolute power, which he in the second entrusts to secondary causes. Thus, notwithstanding an absolute power at any time capable of changing the order of nature, that order is perfectly trustworthy once God has ordained it. We only know God in this secondary way, through these media, this mediated power. 
That's part of what it means that we don't have access to the universes. And so secondary causes, these secondary causes have an autonomy from God. And I know this is all obscure, and but I think these this kind of philosophical thought is it's just going to have an impact across the board. So prior to this separation, the traditional view, you know, that we just did this actually with Maximus, was that God is a primary cause, uh, work through the, you know, it's not that God is removed from us. And so one of the main issues is the, the question of, you know, the, the hermeneutical keys for understanding, you know, this is really the difference. Some would say, and I, I, this isn't quite fair because obviously all these, you know, Duns, Scotus, William of Ockham, they're, they're Catholics, but the Franciscans in the school of St. Francis of Assisi, they're the nominalists within the Catholic tradition, but nominalism is the primary, I don't know that it's fair to say it's definitive of Protestantism, but we might say that it's definitive of Luther and Calvin. And again, it's not, you know, Luther's going to oppose one part of nominalism. And so the, the significance is somebody like Gabriel Beale, they teach that both man and God play a seemingly equal, that is that there, there is a kind of semi-Pelagianism, and Luther's going to oppose this. Luther advocates the other extreme that we're more familiar with in Calvinism, that God's absolute power renders the efficacy of the human person's will entirely useless. And so the focus is on God's will and sovereignty as, you know, going back again to Augustine. Now, even as I'm saying this, there are people who, say, who would object and say this is an incorrect understanding of Luther. Again, thinking of the Finnish theologians who uh, have delved into, you know, Luther has a strong understanding of God's love. They're, they're not undoing, I think, the, what I'm saying here. But the point of departure for Luther's theology is to establish that what is done or rather not done by the human person and what is done by God acting upon that person is, is key. This is Luther. You cannot know what free will is without knowing what ability man's will has and what God does and whether he foreknows of necessity. And so again, they're safeguarding predestination. They're safeguarding God's sovereignty. And so for Luther, God is behind all causality. And the human person is a passive recipient of God's action. We might say, yeah, God's action in Christ, but there is no free will for man in Luther's estimation. Of course, this just goes back to Augustine. And Luther says it this way, we do everything of necessity and nothing by free will, for the power of free will is nil, and it does no good, nor can do without grace. The sovereignty of God's will necessarily excludes any causality on the part of the human person. And Luther asserts that free will of the person is com entrusted completely to God's power. Quote, God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it un the, under the control of his will. 
that's the biggie is that in other words in in uh maximus and before this we might have talked we talked about a synergistic relationship between the will of god and the will of man luther is going to pit nature against grace that is human nature the the natural order stands over and against god's grace so the two-tiered great you know two-tiered understanding nature over and against grace which again goes back to augustine but it's developed in in uh, aquinas i just have a question about nominalism how would it relate and i'm, I'm i may be trying to oversimplify it by asking you to say one way or the other but how does it relate to uh greek philosophy like in terms of platonism and aristotelianism was nominalism sort of a shift away from one to the other or is that a helpful way or not a helpful way to think of it? It probably has the sense more of a Platonic sense than an Aristotelian sense. So in Aquinas, you know, they're going to find the universals in the particulars. Yeah. But even in a Neoplatonism, they're still going to talk about a participation in God. So in, in a sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a denial of that kind of participation. It's certainly over and against Aquinas, who is Aristotelian, but I think it's just over and against a Greek philosophical understanding. Okay. So if we think in terms of Anselm, Abelard, you know, what we're calling scholasticism, I think nominalism is already over and against the synthesis between Aristotle <laughs> and Christian theology. And so there's in this, there's this twofold authority. There's divine revelation. This is interpreted through the magisterium and through reason. And Aquinas' scholasticism, it too would regard revelation. You know, he's also going to talk about it as ultimately beyond human intellectual grasp. But at the same time, he, he's going to talk about it being in accord or not in contradiction with reason. So faith and reason work hand in hand in scholasticism. But in, in uh, nominalism, it's a turn against metaphysics. So it, it is a Greek metaphysical understanding, you know, that in Duns Scotus, that what is called the univocity of being, that in and through the world's being and the being of God is a shared being. That's the shared background that you can actually get to the being of God. You can argue through reason from the being of God to the being, uh, from the being of the world. Maybe an easy way to illustrate this, or maybe it's not, I always think it's easy. I hope I'm not confusing everybody. You go back to Anselm of Canterbury. He talks about that the word of man is small w, but through that small w, we can arrive at the word of God, which is Christ. And he just pictures it as on a continuum. And in fact, he talks about his ontological argument as a literal entering into the place from which the word arises. Now, he's also talking about a kind of mystical experience here. Uh, the, you know, is the word a singular or plural word? Well, it's a singular word. To me, I, you know, at this point, you know, oh, you know Jesus. Uh, that is that it, it, you're no longer doing cognition. You're doing experience. And this is rationalism. This is why I, in a previous lecture, I referred to Anselm's 
uh, you know, this is Schufrader's phrase, that Anselm is a rational mystic. We often think of rationalism and mysticism as pitted against each other. I think they're actually working hand in hand, uh, at least in this understanding. So when we think about Neoplatonism, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the, the experiential. So what I've just described, the nominalists are going to say, uh, we do not have access to the essence. We do not have access to the universals. We do not have access to the absolute transcendence of God. So they're not Greek. They're over and against the scholastics, and this is going to define Luther's doctrine. You know, this is his uh, picture, the picture of the Heidelberg Catechisms. He, he's going to talk about the God, you know, the, the God of the philosophers, uh, theologians of glory, or the uh, theologians of the cross. And he's going to say the theologians of glory are working according to a scholastic metaphysics. In this, I think he's a nominalist. And again, this, you know, some people would, you know, just say, oh, no, this is just distinct to Luther. But I think it is a peculiarity of nominalism that he's over. This is the sense in which he's over and against scholasticism. Okay. Did, uh, did Luther overlook the, the entire conversation about nonviolence? Was he able to at least begin incorporating any of that? Or did the Anabaptists just sort of take it and run and all, all that followed from that? Luther thought we should kill the <laughs> Anabaptists. <laughs> and everybody hates the Anabaptists. I, and your question's a good question, Jim, because I think that's always a way of tracing whether we're dealing with, with Christianity or we're dealing with something else. Calvin's going to burn some 70 people at the stake. Luther is anti-Semitic. It may be an almost crazy. In some way, there's a departure from the, the peace of Christ. You know, the Anabaptists are, they're working in this context, but they're going to recover the peace of Christ. That's not there in Luther and Calvin. Paul, doesn't that, that, um, that kind of plays out? The, the way that Luther sees the Bible um, leaves them almost no choice. You know, Old Testament is, is simply law, and uh, you have the New Testament that is gospel or grace or, or something, like, something like that, which, I mean, he builds then his whole uh, justification by faith through that. So what's a few dead people if, um, you know, they can still go to heaven? You just don't have to agree with them. Yeah, and, in, and this, actually, you guys are doing better than I am. You're, you're getting this because what, David, what you're describing is a kind of agonistic struggle that I have said all through is characteristic of violence. Luther, you know, and Calvin and the Protestants, I guess it was there in Augustine, they think that antagonism, that's as good as it gets. To me, that's already violence. And so the depiction of violence in the Old Testament is not troubling to, to them. That violence, a kind of originary violence, Surely not, but that seems to be almost what they're working with. Luther is just going to continually talk about, you know, the dialectic between law and grace. That's just one of several dialectics that he's talking about. And they're all this kind of antagonistic thing, that the one is the opposite of the other, not harmonized in Christ, but the idea is that uh, he kind of, he revels in the paradox of it 
that you need to be slain by the law to be saved by grace. That would make a great paper, by the way, is Luther's dialectic, as I think all dialectic is inherently violent. Does it give, give rise? Does it lend itself? You understand that Catholics are trying to kill him, but he doesn't mind killing a few people either, or having a few people die. Would it be, um, and, and maybe I, maybe I'm forgetting what I read here, but Luther sees the word not as Jesus per se, but as scripture, right? There is that distinction in Luther that he talks about the word. It's not, you know, when we begin talking about the rule of faith with Irenaeus and we went through and we talked about the gospel, we just talk about Jesus. You know, that's really what we're saying is the gospel is, is who Christ is. That's, I hear what you're saying, that, there, that Luther begins to talk about Scripture. Certainly he ties it to the Word. I get that feeling that there is a kind of room there between the words of Scripture, the mediation of language, and the person of Christ. Certainly the words refer to Christ. I don't know if I'm being fair, that, that there, there is a, an experiential side to Luther. But I, yeah, I got that feeling too. Well, let me throw out one more thing and you can shoot it down. I think if Luther was living today, and this is no respect to my Southern Baptist friends, but I think he'd be a Southern Baptist, wouldn't he? I mean, his, the way that he interprets scripture, the way that he, I, I tried to put him in uh, modern terms and kind of, I don't know if fundamentalist was you know, as far as the way that he, he viewed scripture and, and different things like that. And, but I don't know, I could be totally off. So, and I could fail this whole course and uh, <laughs> never yeah. get my diploma. <laughs> uh, I think you're partly right and a little bit, a little bit not right. And that is that by the time we get to fundamentalism, uh, that there is, it is word-based. In other words, what fundamentalists want to do in their description of biblical inerrancy, that you need the literal truth of Scripture in order to preserve the truth, because they don't see the gospel as something separate from Scripture. I think that impetus for that is there in Luther. But of course, Luther himself is not that fundamentalist, because he can, as you read in Westerholm, he certainly has room for mistakes in Scripture, or just as Origen did, or, or obscurities, or for textual inadequacies, or even in terms of the canon. So he's, in that sense, he wouldn't probably be, fit into Southern Baptists if we're talking about the fundamentalist Southern Baptists defending biblical inerrancy. Could you just, uh, that paper that you mentioned that is a possibility. I wrote Luther's dialectic gives rise to... I think dialectic is a violence, is always violent. You know, dialectic is just the articulation of a dualism. Dialectic works through, if we're thinking in terms of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, oh, we need the good to understand the evil, but we need the evil just as much to understand the good. So, we need this master, and actually the Hegel's master-slave dialectic, many people would point right to Martin Luther and say Hegel's just reading Luther. Uh, and even the Hegel, you know, the Hegel, people read Hegel differently. Is Hegel talking about 
you know, Marx reads Hegel and says, well, he's talking about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, you know, as if these are actually two people. But I think Hegel is actually not talking about two different people. I think the master and slave is a dialectic, at least this is the psychoanalytic reading of Hegel, that he's actually talking about the dialectic within an individual. There is in Freudian, you know, Freud is reading, Freudianism is really just a kind of extension of Hegelianism. At least this is Slavoj Zizek's picture of Hegel. And that is that the superego is the master and the ego is the slave. And that dialectic is that antagonism between the two that you can link to Paul's picture in Romans 7. I think that's out of Luther. But Luther, see, to me, this is the way aligning the theologians up. Who reads Romans 7 as the normal Christian life, and who doesn't? I think that divides uh, two kinds of theology. So in Lutheranism, you need the dialectic, and the dialectic never disappears, even in Christ, because the dialectic is all we have. There is no ontological ground beyond the dialectic. Can we rewind for a minute to last week and have you say that the opposite of what it, how it comes out in Maximus? Because I know at the end of your last blog, uh, you said something about the identity through difference breaking down. I wonder how that relates here. In other words, Maximus is saying that in Christ, God and man come together in their fullness. Maximus is emphasizing the humanity of Christ just as much as the deity of Christ. He is bringing together these things that are not a dialectic in Christ. This is who Christ is in his person. Yes, there's two natures. Yes, there's two wills. But those are brought together in one person. And so we're no longer doing dialectic. We're no longer doing an antagonistic struggle because Christ bridges the gap. It's a different order of reason. Now, it's so wild, you know, Maximus is going to, I didn't pursue that in the blog, because again, you almost have to take on all of Western theology to to carry out what Maximus is doing, because I think Lutheranism, in its dialectic understanding taken up in Hegel, and actually in Kant, that, that is definitive of the West. And again, you know, is does Aquinas deal with apocatastasis? Well, I, I'm sure it's there, but it's not. It's a different order of reason than, than we're getting in Maximus. Did that hit it? Yeah, I just wanted to hear it stated from that, that angle. Paul, just to summarize what I think I hear you saying is that Luther introduces this duality between you know, law and gospel, God and man, seen and or perceived and unperceived, and that dialectic or that 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 duality then gets transferred to you know, someone like like Descartes, who who tries to find a foundation for what he does see, kind of in himself. You know, the I think, therefore, I am. I can't really be sure of anything else but you know i will find that found that on myself and then kant sort of takes that with the the nomina and the phenomena and then the the idealists 
take that and they run with this idea of everything is phenomenal. Everything is what we perceive and that's what's going to be the important thing. And then kind of Western philosophy goes on that track for a while, being sort of phenomenology, inward looking, linguistic turn, and that just just drives everything away from this ideal, this this sort of uh, pre-existing ontology that was there beforehand. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that... Uh, no, that's it. I just add the footnote. You know that it's not it's not so much Luther, mm. but it's nominalism that precedes mm. Luther, and Luther, in one aspect, is carrying on nominalism. So, I see. Yeah. So he's just part of that. And who's to blame? Well, the Franciscans, William of Ockham, radical Orthodox guys, they want to include Duns Scotus in this. But certainly, you know, the idea of his university of being, I ran together two different things there. And by the way, I think they sometimes do too. Who's the boogeyman here? I think that in someone like Duns Scotus, you know, the being of the world and the being of God and being is a kind of abstract category, uh, that there is a kind of absolutizing of reason uh, that the nominalists then, they're rejecting that kind of metaphysical understanding. So the interplay between those two things is actually definitive of what Luther is doing. He's part. He's over and against the scholastics with the nominalists, but he's also going to be over and against the nominalists in their view of will. So, uh, you know, Occam's interest is in preserving the creator's volition, and then that creates tension between the imminent and transcendent transcendence of God. An omnipotent creator could have created a cosmos contrary to its current moral order. In other words, we don't have access to the, the essence of God. And so this is voluntarism, nominalism, voluntarism. God can create anything which, whilst not involving contradiction, nevertheless still transcends reason. We can't access God through human understanding. But nominalism insisted that on the that we could do good. That is, if we do what that which was in us, I'll come to this here in a minute. They insisted that universal concepts are, you know, it, it's there in the grammar, it's there in the human mind, and it's not there in nature, but they still had a doctrine of salvation or, or of soteriology. The believer was made righteous by an internally created habit. And so the justification was not an ontological necessity, but a covenantal necessity. That's going to be there in Luther, too. He's going to talk a lot about the promises of God. So again, that David, the thing you brought up, there's a, something slightly different in Luther's use of the word, and I think it's there in nominalism, because he's going to talk about promise or covenant. And this, for the nominalist, this is all you have. God's promise, God, and that's the way that, you know, perceiving Scripture as a proclamation of promise rather than a salvation history. And so Luther could speak of the Word as a promise. The Word was the means by which God condemns sin and promises salvation. And so human language functions 
as God's recreating word because his promise teach, not only teaches, but it performs or executes his saving will. The promise delivers Christ. It delivers the benefits of his death and resurrection. And what is pre preached or bestowed, you know, in, the, in and through the sacraments. And of course, Luther's going to have a big problem with the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments, because if you go back to Aquinas, he's going to explain transubstantiation using Aristotelian logic. And Luther is going to talk about this as, you know, so much babble. Uh, he thinks this is ridiculous. And in the actually in the Eastern Church, they may believe in something like, but they, they would just count it, they would just say it's a mystery. But in the West, they're going to explain it, how the bread and wine turn into the body of, and blood of Christ. And so he's going to read Scripture no longer, you know, as some sort of scholarly mastery, but as the occasion for encountering God's action. And of course, what he gives up in is, is the notion of being, you know, the, the nominalists are going to talk about doing that which was, is within you will satisfy God. He denies that. So Luther's hermeneutic reversed the principle of analogy by spiritualizing the letter instead of abstracting the letter to a higher spiritual truth. Or uh, uh, he asserted that it was not the spiritualized content beyond the word that matters, but the prophecies, the promises. And so Luther understood the word as God's instrument to create trust or faith through the Holy Spirit. So this is anti-realist. You know, when we talk about an anti-realism, we're not talking about a metaphysical reality, that faith cannot be understood as, you know, Augustine understood it as divine illumination. Faith alongside righteousness is incomprehensible because the crucifixion reversed the assumed order of all relationships. You know, Luther puts a lot of weight on the, the cross is foolishness to Greeks. And he kind of pictures everybody doing Greek philosophy as misapprehending the cross. And so faith reorders human understanding by negating its possibility and therefore giving way to its realization. So the theology of glory also ignores human suffering. Uh, by the way, the suffering of Christ, you know, and uh, on the cross also. They're going to try to divide Christ up. So Luther's phrase, God died on the cross. You've probably heard uh, that's the phrase that Hegel will pick up and then Nietzsche will pick up. And of course, they all mean something slightly different by it. But what Luther meant by it was that we don't divide the humanity from the deity. That's really God on the cross. And this destroys corrupt human wisdom. And so the old theology, the scholasticism, viewed the universe, you know, this is uh, as permeated by the logos, its rationality leads to the to div divine itself. But in the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther, he, he doesn't dispute the possibility of natural knowledge of God, but he disputes its reality. Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, asserts that for Luther, this knowledge is useless not to mention dangerous. And of course, what Moltmann means as a former Nazi is what Bart means 
is the Analogiantus, is the Antichrist. These guys are both, in this sense, following Luther, because what did human reason get us? It opened the church door to evil, in their estimate. So I think the existential reading produced a kind of, it goes along with the forensic interpretation of justification because it assumed that being is found only in our relationship to God. God, you know, Luther's going, there is a focus on the relation that man, man's relationship to God. God is not an intrinsic substance to be grasped in this life, but is to be understood and grasped only through the cross. We only have God through faith, not through some sort of synergistic understanding. And so he says, a life lived under the cross is one in which humanity is unable to ascend to the goodness of God, but he remains immersed in suffering, where righteousness is gifted by God only in hope. I think that's a kind of forensic understanding. He's rejecting Scotus's univocity and Occam's univocity, that Occam also is going to talk about a univocity in contrast to an analogientus. And so Scotus jettisoned both the jettison the Thomas view that the immediate most subtle object of the intellect is the essence, the quiddity of the material object. And with Scotus, the intellect's primary object was reconceived as being. Drew, who does this remind you of? Probably Heidegger. It's Heidegger. Yeah. It mm -hmm. sounds like Heidegger, and that's what a lot of people have noticed. Heidegger sounds like Scotus. But, of course, that's what he studied. Yeah, it was his dissertation, right? It was Scotus, uh, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So as yeah. the intellect's primary intentional object, being functions as a kind of pre, at a pre-experiential level, enabling the intellect to grasp hold of entities and to develop abstract knowledge. Now, this is Heidegger's phrase, that we've forgotten being in our focus on beings. <laughs> so he's going to focus on faith, you know, his principle of faith. Instead of an intellectual ascent to dogma, the focus is on personal trust in Christ and in the cross of Christ. And so the, for Luther... Uh, the cross is an essential event of faith. This is from his Heidelberg Disputation. Anyone who observes the invisible things of God, understood through those things that are created, does not deserve to be called a theologian. So they're looking at, you know, this is kind of modern apologetics, but it's, goes, it's Aquinas, it's Anselm, it's looking at the world and saying we can argue to God from the world. Luther would say, yeah, wrong God, that we need to find uh, the, the God of the cross. And so he, there is also the focus, you know, in this, on in nominalism of a distant God of, you know, Luther's thoroughly in, in saturated in nominalism. Nominalism's not very comforting. And I think this gets at his own self-punishment when he was a young monk, that in the face of an angry, distant, omnipotent deity. That is kind of the existential experience, I think, that where nominalism leaves you. And even the idea of receiving God's grace that's there in Occam, it, it's kind of remote. 
and this is where his advisor, you know, at the monastery says, Luther, you need to, he kept coming and confessing all of his sins. He said, Luther, you need to do some real sinning. You, know? <laughs> uh, the, the, you don't even, your sins don't, you know, all this piddly stuff, go, you know, commit murder or do something that, uh, and he advises him to look to the cross of Jesus for assurance. And Luther did. And so the old picture, well, God works, he exercises his volition through the confines of reason and revelation working in tandem. And that's there in Aquinas, that's, that's what we mean by scholasticism. But Luther then is going to pose a kind of dialectic that is structured as a conflict of opposites. Then the opposites here not only clash, but they imply and they need each other. You know, this is his law of grace. Grace needs law, and law needs grace, that you need the striving and the seeking of God. And so this is Luther. All the works of God are in conflict with his promise, which nevertheless remains completely true and unshaken. The marvelous counsels of God in governing his saints must be learned, and the hearts of the godly must become accustomed to them. When you have a promise of God, it will happen that the more you are loved by God, the more you will have it hidden, delayed, and turned into its opposite. The more, you, the more your faith is deepened, the greater the agony, the greater the agony, the deeper the faith. The dialectic is aggravated. The agony is, you know, the suffering is increased. But isn't that a picture of the cross and the way in which we encounter God? That the suffering of God on the cross is taken up into the, this is Moltmann. Actually, I'm getting carried away here. But Moltmann, I think, is just a good Lutheran. And this this was actually Westerham. I liked a few of their quotes here. This presumption of righteousness to make man's plight plain to him by means of the law, and thus to con break and confound him by self-knowledge, so as to prepare him for grace and send him to Christ that he may be saved. And of course, the, his problem is he's presumed that he's righteous, and this is a, a, a huge and horrible monster. And the purpose of the law is to break and crush it. God needs a large and powerful hammer. That is the law, which is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning of divine wrath. Luther was sort of colorful, actually, and... <laughs> in his expression. So Luther states, the will is not free to strive toward whatever is declared good. It is impossible for man to love God of his own volition. And uh, that's over and against both Scotus and Beale. It is impossible. Man is by nature unable to want God to be God and rather wants himself to be God. And Luther declared that man within himself uh, is inherently sinful and does not contain within himself the means to please God. <laughs> Maybe that's enough. That's a quick summary of Martin Luther, and, and, uh, as I understand it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, 
or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.